Hi, this is Dr. Michael Gervais, High Performance Psychologist with Finding Mastery, and I'm excited to share the episode that we did with Sleep, Eat, Perform, and Repeat. Coming up on Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. So the world is evidenced by the great resignation. The world is saying, I'm not doing this anymore the way I was doing it. Well, the reason that this is happening is because we have failed to explore and to apply this beautiful science of psychology. So our minds are our greatest asset, but if uninvested, it's an asset that is, that is it's weak. And so the world is saying, I'm resigning from the way I'm doing life. And it's not the physical experience that they're in. It's not the external conditions for the most part. It's the internal conditions. We are really, really excited to share this episode with you. When we think of the perfect guest for Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, Dr. Michael Gervais was never far away in our minds, so we're absolutely thrilled to have him on the show today. Michael has also generously given the listeners of the show the opportunity to win an exclusive prize. He's given away two places on his online course, Finding Your Best, which is a true masterclass for your mind. It's a course curated by high-performance psychologist Dr. Michael Gervais, but also by NFL head coach Pete Carroll. You'll learn how to craft your own personal philosophy, set a vision, and apply the skills of confidence, optimism, calm, and mindfulness in your everyday life. You'll also learn 12 other essential mindset principles. So this is a prize worth over $500 each, and we're going to give out details on how to win it on our Instagram page, at sleep, eat, perform, repeat. In order to get ahead of the game, you can check out Michael's page, at Michael Gervais, and also at Finding Mastery. Have a follow there, and we'll be resharing information on the competition very soon. But not to delay, let's get to the episode with the renowned Dr. Michael Gervais. Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high performing individuals tick, why they do what they do and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons and learnings. Today we spoke with Dr. Michael Gervais, performance psychologist, host of the Finding Mastery podcast and co-founder of Compete to Create. As a licensed psychologist and industry visionary, Dr. Gervais has focused most of his time on people at the top of their game, from the NFL Seattle Seahawks and NBA players to Olympians, military personnel and corporate leaders. Spending years in the trenches of high stakes circumstances, Dr. Gervais has developed clarity for the tools that allow people to thrive under pressure. He's a published peer-reviewed author and an internationally recognized speaker on issues related to high performance for those who excel on the largest stages in the world. Compete to Create is a mindset and culture accelerant company with the mission of helping people find their best. The course, co-founded by coach Pete Carroll of the Seattle Seahawks and Michael, focuses on mindset skills to help people become their very best. Michael often talks about how we can train our body, our craft, our mind. We are currently undertaking his Founding Your Best online course and find it fantastic. Today we start with the origins of Michael's surname, the culinary delights in his household. We dig into why alignment makes more sense for Michael rather than balance for high performers. Personal philosophy, values, his feelings about legacy, what is lighting up the dragon in Michael? He asks us our definition of high performance, which was fun. Every day is an opportunity to create a living masterpiece, as he says. Dr. Michael Gervais, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for taking the time to speak with the two of us today. Uh, stoked to be here with you guys. Thanks for including me in uh, your community. 
Her and I were talking actually before the call, Michael. You know, us as Irish people are always very interested in history and where people have come from and Irish ancestry and so forth. And, you know, we like to claim a, a lot of you over here, certain presidents like Biden and JFK and Obama, of course. But we're curious as to the origins of your surname, because that's what really stood out to us nearly when we were doing the little bit of prep uh, for the show today. Oh, yeah. Um, thanks for asking. I don't get asked that often enough. So I've got some Irish roots, as you might appreciate, oh. but not uh, indicated by my surname. So the surname is Gervais. And we did a whole family dig, or our family did a dig into where that came from. And come to find out, it's obviously uh, a French origin. And come to find out, we think it's actually traced back to North American Indian heritage. So how could that possibly happen? Well, so the name Gervais was uh, French Canadian, and there was tremendous dangerous times for American Indians at certain point in, in the US. And so we think our ancestors adopted the name Gervais to be able to get over the border. And so wow. we've got some Native American roots. We've got um, on the other side of my family, it's Italian and then uh, Irish. So, but the name is a bit of a mystery because we don't track back to kind of the origins of France. Molto bene, Michael. Molto yeah. bene. <laughs> some, uh, some Irish hardiness as well. <laughs> yeah, we, we don't lack passion and like a little kind of inner fire. We do not lack that in this family. And Michael, what would be the go-to dish of cuisine in that household, considering the lovely mixture of gastronomy and culture? For, for me, I mean, the Italian. I identify with my Italian roots more than more than the others, just because my grandfather took such a large presence in my life, and um, he's Sicilian. And then my wife is Cuban, half Cuban, half El Salvadorian. And so I think we have more Cuban <laughs> meals in the house than we do Italian, because I'm not chefing things up like she can and her family can. So uh, that would be the go-to. Yeah, it doesn't sound like anything's wrong there, Cuban and a mix of Italian. You were like I said, the, the fire's un unreal over here. <laughs> So you grew up in Warrington, Virginia, a small town. Is that right? Yeah. And so that was a really small town. Dirt roads, no streetlights. Neighbors were um, a long way away. We had like 30 acres behind us in our, in our yard. And so it was, um, it was definitely Spartan. And um, we learned a lot from the land. And my parents in the 70s were kind of the classic, let's drop out of the city and go find ourselves. And so they found their, their, themselves and, and I guess me in in a small little town called Warrington. It was awesome. It was a great place to grow up. What was the value of growing up in that small town, that small town approach? And did it inform much of how you live your life today? Well, you know, I didn't know it at the time. I was just a little rug rat, you know, running around kind of in the bluegrass hills in Virginia, which are, you know, they're beautiful. But we didn't, my parents were very laissez-faire. And so rules were infrequent and up, they're kind of like Italian road rules. You know, they're just more suggestions. Yep. Right. So, so, you know, the very few rules, but mother nature is an incredible teacher. And so I had to figure out at a young age, how to be attuned to be able to, you know, not get hurt and kind of whipped around by uh, the consequences of mother nature. And I'm talking like at five, six, seven years old. And so there was just looking back, it was an incredible way to dig my toenails and fingernails into the dirt and figure out what mother nature had to teach. And so not that long, it was like 13, we moved to California and it was a definitely a culture shock. And then the speed of the city life was definitely like, whoa, this is different. People are different here. You know, they, they don't kind of lounge and chill. They're actually really motivated towards 
something along the sides of social climbing or business development, or like there's all these other motives mm -hmm. that I had to figure out as a 13 year old kid. With regards to the navigation there, I mean, we're always talking about speed of life and people being busy, being busy, stuck in, stuck in your work, as it were, especially when you're all go in a professional sport environment or in that kind of high pressure corporate world. What, like, what's it about striking the balance? Like, how can we find that balance? Well, I think I'm not sure the balance, I don't know how to teach from balance. So I'm probably not the right person there, but I, I can, I can teach from alignment. I can teach from being able to harmoniously work with the speed of the present moment. And so I can definitely pull the covers off of that and, and get into it. But balance, like I, I actually don't know anyone that has balance. Um, in, in elite sport, it is, and big business, it is fast. And the amount of time required to meet the demands and meet the opportunities and challenges, it, it just deeply requires an all-in perspective. So when I think of balance, I think of it to be a mythical ridgeline. Like it doesn't, I don't, I've never experienced it, so I don't know it. But the alignment thing is to line up our thoughts, words, and actions. And we can line up our thoughts, words, and actions in any given moment, then we are not pulled. And there's a an alignment, which is like the tensile strength of alignment from a psychological perspective is remarkable. And so our work is to know what optimized or ideal thoughts, words, and actions are and to line those up. And so how do we do that? Well, first we need great awareness of what's happening on the inside and so that we can eloquently manage the external demands. And if you have that in, inside out, outside in perspective, and you're working from both, the present moment is like a raindrop. Just follow the analogy here for a minute with me, is that as a raindrop drops, at each segmentation, it's a new moment. And it doesn't quite hold true because eventually a raindrop hits the ground and it's over, but so too is at least our physical life. But then it transforms into something else. So at, in one level, it does hold in another, you know, we, we don't know what happens after our physical life ends. But if this raindrop is dropping, then our job is to be on time with the dropping. But what our mind does is something quite remarkable is that it wants to pull zoom forward and zoom back and, and pay attention to all the things that could go wrong and entertain those stories, which is, it's an amazing human capability to use our mind to think forward and to use our mind to think backwards. However, most people are not disciplined in the training of that radical capability. And so we spend more time in the present moment or in the, in the past than that allows, than allows for us to be on time with the falling drop, if you will. And so the alignment is when your thoughts, words, and actions are completely aligned and you're on time with the dropping of that raindrop. So when we have that alignment of thought, words, and actions, that power is so remarkable. Nobody can take it away from you. And so you end up being fully hydrated. I'll kind of extend this metaphor just one more level. Hydrated in the present moment. And just like any plant, when you're fully hydrated, it's like, oh, that's how this is supposed to be. It is rare that people have the depth and the clarity of what a powerful optimized thought is for them in context to the unfolding unpredictable present moment so that's where this art and science of psychology becomes fascinating 
because the multitude of choices that we have to be in the present moment is exponential. So how do we choose the thoughts and the words and the actions that are fully aligned to be on time in the present unfolding present moment? That's the game of high performance. So I wish I had a short hack for you guys, but I I don't know any. And I wish I had something simpler to say than, oh, you know, just get a pie chart out and write down 30% of your time is going to be for family and 30% of your time is going to be for business. And the other 30 is for fun. Like, I, I just, I can't see it that way. Well, thanks for the depth. We appreciate it. Just thinking into people who are facing or have faced a difficult circumstance facing a challenge, maybe some people in war zones and uncertainty with their jobs and difficult relationships or family situations. And the present moment is quite troubling. It's quite difficult. What can they do to best face up to that challenge and bring their best self forward in order to overcome and maybe get the best outcome for everyone overall? I love the question, especially in context of what's happening globally right now. It's a bit like there's a range though, because it's a bit like saying, Okay, 24-year-old kid, you've got your entire wealth on the line for this one-on-one pickup game with Michael Jordan. Hmm. How are you going to do? Well, shit, if, I, if the kid hasn't trained and doesn't have like one technical skills, two physical skills, three psychological skills to manage that real risk of the financial risk and the perceived risk of, you know, what are people going to think of me? then I, I wouldn't say it's probably going to be favorable for that person. But if that person's like, yeah, this is what I'm built for. This is what I've trained for. I love these types of stakes and opportunities. And you know what? I know how to work with stress. I do. I, I understand how to do. I know how to work with a basketball and da, 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 da. So the technical craft in life is not as simple as the technical crafts in, in say, basketball. But somebody who has invested in their inner life, they'll do just fine. But somebody who it's shell shocking brand new, they're going to have a harder time. And so it's more difficult based on the relative investment of the internal skills. So I was sharing this just the other day is that somebody on my team was asking like, at the end of the day, what's it like for me? And I say, you know, some days I'm tired, some days not, but more days than not, and I, listen, I'm answering emails at 10 o'clock too, just like most people that are trying to build something, is that I think I spend far less energy throughout my day because I'm able to I'm able to make some choices on how much to allocate from a resource perspective. And I over-index in recovery so that I have available resources, available horsepower to be able to meet the demands, the challenges. So there's a two-part question. One is, it's commensurate based on the internal resources that you've invested in. If you've got incredible internal inventory of resources, you're probably going to be just fine. It doesn't mean it's not easy. I mean, it doesn't mean it's not um, difficult, but you'll probably be just fine. And then the other is over time, the resource required is a depreciating asset. So we must replenish our internal resources from an energy standpoint. And that's why you guys would recognize in high performance sport is that we spend much more time than most people would recognize talking about the science and the art of recovery in elite sport and just holds true with big business is that recovery has a place at the high performance table. And 10 years ago, it, it maybe had a chair, but it was kind of 
it was dusty. It was it was like a chair at the end of the table, <laughs> uh, rarely used. And now it is so much. The, the science is better, you know, and the appreciation for the need to deploy best practices to recover, especially in the speed of our modern living, is people are waving their hands in sport, in business, and outside, saying, "Hey, listen." <laughs> I need to figure this thing out because I'm going to bed exhausted for the last five years as opposed to the last five days, maybe. So there's no more of a dusty chair and it's more of a lazy boy recliner. Like that's where, that's where we're getting. <laughs> yeah, that's good. But, yeah. but but yeah, Michael, to your point, and obviously there's a lot in your course that talks to recovery and, and, and sleep uh, and all those things that we kind of can control. We'd love to dig into, you touched on energy, Michael, and you know we as physios can understand um, recovery it's kind of how we're wired but when when you're when you're busy and you're building a business like you are like we are like a lot of people listening to this are you say yes to certain things that probably give you energy but you have to say no to other things as well because you, you can't do everything especially to a high level so how do you figure out what to say yes to and what to say no to i will share a a model that i use to be able to make decisions so I'm a fan of systems thinking and and frameworks for decisions, but never at the cost of intuition and never at the cost of you know gut feel about something. But frameworks, for the most part, are really valuable. And then I'll share like an asterisk in this is that I say yes more than I say no. And so that is something that me, my family, and my team are always working on is that as a lover of life and a lover of opportunity, I can see good in so much. And I'm excited as a general way of living. And so I think that I can do more than maybe time allows or um, energy systems allow. So I'm probably not a great teacher of this. <laughs> My you know, folks that are listening that know me are like, Jesus, you say yes to everything. And we're trying to constantly figure out how to <laughs> shovel 10 pounds of stuff into a five pound bag. But so here's the framework. It's quite simple is uh, I need two of the three. And if I can get three of these it's a home run. So think of a, of a Venn diagram. Is the decision that I'm, I am working to make, does it have the potential to make massive impact? So if it has the potential to make massive impact, okay, cool. Uh, the second is, is it going to be fun? So that's a selfish thing. Like I want to spend time in an enjoyable, fun way. And then the third is uh, the economics. So is it going to be meaningful? Is it going to be fun? Is it going to make money? And if I can get two of two of the three, it's usually a yes. And so if it's meaningful and fun, I'm probably going to say yes. If it's financial and fun, I'm probably going to say yes. And then if it's meaningful, fun, and financial, I mean, I'm putting all of my resources against it. And so that's the simple framework that I make. And then if you drill down one more level, the speed of that, that decision is based on one-way and two-way doors. So one-way doors measure twice, cut once, two-way doors, eh, just move with speed. Because you know what? You can kind of reverse it back. And so those are the two basic frameworks that I use to help with decisions. That's brilliant. Thanks. Look into decision-making. And Daniel Pink released a book recently, The Power of Regret, and how our regrets influence what we do next, our actions and thoughts that follow. What would you recommend to people to how to frame decision-making around what they've done in the past that they might not be so proud of? Yeah. So when I think of regret, it is a circular experience that takes place that 
quietly or aggressively haunts. And so I understand what he is working to do. And and he's actually coming on uh, the Finding Mastery podcast. I think we're launching it in two weeks. So I understand the power of regret. However, there's a first principle that I've worked from for most of my adult life, which is that people say, well, okay, how? How do the extraordinaries do it? They know their pain. They're in touch with pain. And so pain is one of the most significant reasons why we change. Many of us are so busy and so terrified of dealing with and exploring and getting to know difficult emotions, a la pain, that we never get to that place. So we kind of we kind of stuff it away a little bit. It sounds so 1980, you know, wobbly psychology, but the idea is that for regret is like, no, no, take the time and get in touch with the pain, the choices that you've made and the ones that you didn't make. And and feel that pain so that it can inform the next opportunity that is close to um, what you did or didn't do as an action. So for me, um, to answer specifically, I am, I, I, it sounds trite, but I don't have regrets because I've, I spend so much time, even like my wife and I and my inner circle to spend so much time, my mentor and myself as an N of one to really examine pain and to get to the truth of like, ooh, this stings. So shit was buried for me for a long time. And I'm saying into my thirties. And then I started going, okay, wait, I, there's a mechanism to deal with this. And that mechanism is the introspection that comes from having the courage to share what is truthful inside to either a journal to through a process of meditation and or through somebody that holds wisdom. And I'm trying to practice all three. And so now I've got a much faster flywheel to get to um, what pain offers, which is accelerated growth. So regret is this rumination kind of stuffed away, emotional, difficult experience. And then when you examine and get to know it, there's freedom on the other side, literally freedom. And so for me, like the, the, the regrets that I hold are when I harm others. So when my actions or inactions harm others, and I've got a whole host of them that I've experienced in my life. One of the brilliant steps in the 12-step program, I'm not a recovering or an, an addict in any way, but um, oh. although my wife and I were exploring the other day, like, am I a workaholic? <laughs> you know, so um, <laughs> we're, we're kind of taking a look at that. But the idea is um, to, to get in touch with the people you've hurt and to reach out when appropriate and to apologize. That's really powerful to free yourself from this inner circle loop that takes place, regret, shame, and guilt, where it just kind of keeps, it's, it's almost like a joke. It just kind of keeps banging you on the head and it circles around and bangs you on the head. And so if you can get out of that loop by examining it and taking action, there's freedom on the other side. So for me, it's anytime I hurt somebody, you know, it's usually with words. And so the artistry of my science is to attend to words. And so I, I want to hold that with great significance. To touch on words, Michael, and, you know, we can, we're both bearing fruit of going through your course and, and learning about ourselves oh, thank actually, you, through yeah, the thank whole you. process, which, yeah, thoughts, words, actions, clarity, conviction, trying to find a word that uh, sticks out from a video that really um, is enveloping a process. 
the piece that's jumped out to the two of us who were touching on it earlier, the personal philosophy and finding an alignment to that. And of course, you've, you've spoken about it, you, you've written about it, and it's obviously part of your course and a, and a huge part of that. But there's no doubt about it, our listeners would get so much energy and value from it, especially when, when stuff comes up, be that good or bad, how to live with that, I suppose, that guiding light, as it were. Would love for you to just, any way you'd like, just unpack how you got to defining yours and, and do you even feel you live it each and every day? And, and if, if you, if you do live up to it, great. And maybe if you don't, what does that look like? First, I'm so stoked that you guys took the course and um, so honored and, and excited that to know that you're doing the work and that your community members um, are maybe turned on to it. You know, so philosophy, philosophy is just the clarity of your guiding principles. What are your first principles in life? And you could have pages of first principles. And the idea is to pare those down into a way that you can, at least for right now, get your arms around a handful of first principles that really matter to you right now in your life. And then to put that in some sort of form, a sentence, maybe it's a word that encompasses them. And then from that clarity, to live with conviction against that requires mental skills development. So from clarity to conviction, as you mentioned, and those that live with conviction are, they are heroes. You know, they are the ones that change the world. Gandhi, Mother Teresa, um, Nelson Mandela. Yeah, and the list goes on. Jesus, Buddha, Confucius, the list goes on and on of folks that like had incredible conviction everywhere they went. And it's because they were so clear with the first principles. Then they had the mental skills to be able to back it up. And so that process of going from clarity to conviction and to develop the mental skills is something that's available to every one of us right now. And it's not easy though. And I'm mindful when I say that out loud because it's wonderful, but it does require working with the invisible. And the invisible is somewhat tricky. And so the invisible is like your thoughts, right? And so if we can go from thoughts and get them out onto a piece of paper somewhere, then we're taking the invisible, all of your thoughts that are banging around in, inside, and then to externalize them on a piece of paper so that you can wrestle with them and look at them and go, wait, if there is a forcing function exercise to say, what are my first principles? What are my guiding principles? These are them. Can I poetically get them into a sentence or two so that I could practice it? That's it. And then, and then you will get challenged. You know, if let's say a first principle for you is um, nonviolence or a first principle is kindness. When you go into the environment where let's say it's fast paced, there's a bit of aggression, there's some hostility in it and you're getting double tapped, you know, you're looked, you're looked at in a way like to, to defend yourself and you, all of your, your resources and your intuitions are like to get on your front foot you know, to kind of raise your shoulders a little bit and square up and be like, and then you go, wait a minute, first principle kindness. Okay, hold on. Let me get over the center part of my mass. <laughs> let, let me actually have my, my eyes turn up a little bit here instead of like squinting down and let me work for my heart. And so if you can do that, then you're living in alignment with your first principles. And then we go back full regret that when we're off mass from our first principles, even if we haven't written them down, but we're just like, oh, I don't like how I did that. Well, that's where we start to find regrets. So that's also why we need the, 
psychological skills and mental skills to, to be more calm, to be more aware of our thoughts and emotions, to, to have the confidence to go into a situation where we're not knocked around by the external world, but we have that, that private, quiet knowing that we adjust well. That's what confidence is. Like, I think I can do that. I think I can muster my technical skills and my psychological skills to meet that challenge. I, th- I think I can. It's not, oh, I know I can, because that's bullshit. We don't know we can, because we've never literally been in that moment. Unless, of course, um, there's zero challenge in it. My 13 and a half year old son, if we're going to have a dunk contest, I'm going to beat him. <laughs> Is that confidence? Well, no, it's just like a fact. <laughs> you know? So why don't, we, why don't we organize our world in a way that we can learn just like the, some of the greats do, is they organize their world to run to the edges of complicated, high-pressured opportunities to work in those environments because that's where the good stuff is happening. You know, And it doesn't mean we don't retreat to high water. It doesn't mean that. But we need to go test ourselves because if we can only be at peace at the mountaintop, oh, shit. <laughs> you know, like, I need, I need to find a sense of peace and fill in the blanks in the city. And then I need to find it in intense environments. And if I can do that, I'm working towards a living masterpiece. And that's, for me, that is a first principle, you know, um, to work from a living masterpiece. Jumping back to your last point about your wife and yourself exploring that you may be a workaholic. When are you at your best? When is Dr. Michael Gervais really firing on all cylinders, finding that alignment that you mentioned at the start of the show? And hopefully it's not just putting a poster on your son outside in the, the dunk contest, but where do you feel like you are bringing yourself truly and when you're aligning with all of that? Well, if this sounds, um, this will sound a bit trite, but um, I'll, gi- I'll give her a go with you and you guys push back when, however you want, is that I am at my best when there's a feeling inside of me that has incredible fire and that fire... Um, isn't overrun and it's it's just burning really brightly. And so it's a, I'm at my best when I can harness that. And one way that I make that more concrete for others, because I, I realize that that's like, what is he saying? It's a little bit like a dragon. I love, dragons are like one of my favorite animals. And I, I get the mythical joke you know, about it, but like I love it because they, they're protectors and they're aggressors and they can breathe ridiculous fire, or they could just maybe blow a little smoke, or they've got, you know, just this warmth fire. And so it's that harnessing of that fire. It's not being run over by the fire. And it's not, it's not, not having the ability to conjure up the fire. Like I don't want to lose my dragon's fire. So many men have lost their fire. And I'm not saying something where this is this is a this is dangerous territory in modern life, but so many men have lost it well before some of the uh, egregious behaviors that we are more aware of now well before that because we have been taught in so many ways that the aggressive nature of of humanity is completely wrong well there are times when aggression is required and i can't speak for women's experience here because i i am not one and i have incredible respect for their unique genetic and psychological experiences that are different than what the three of us have had experience in life so there is there's the importance of being able to know we all have dragons. There's importance to be able to know how to have a relationship with your dragon. So when I'm at my best, my dragon is alive. 
when she is at her best, my wife, um, her dragon has all the fire that you can imagine as well. And so that is uniquely different for each person. And it's uniquely different culturally. And it's uniquely different um, across gender and age. And so that's a way that I think about it. Now, if you were, that's from the inside out. So everything that I'm going to answer in our conversations will be inside out, not outside in. Mm -hmm. Because most, I think most people, when they answer that question, would say, when am I at my best? Oh, when, you know, the environment's fast paced and, you know, I'm being challenged Mm -hmm. or when it's really calm and quiet and I can think deeply. No, I like, I need to have the fire to be able to burn brightly wherever I go. So I am forever building this relationship with the dragon inside. So over the next couple of months, what's, what's lighting and exciting the fire in this dragon? Well, it's, it's the meaningful opportunity that the world is asking for right now. So the world, this is, this is an outside in um, perspective, but the world is saying, Hey, uh, I need some help. I'm exhausted. I'm a bit overwhelmed. I, um, I've got so much inside of me that I feel like it's just being trapped by the way that I'm living my life. You know, I'm, I'm nine to five is like a joke and it's like more like eight to 11. And I am trying to figure out how to have a relationship with my children, have a relationship with my future, have a sense of security in the bank and to do meaningful work. So the world is evidenced by the great resignation, the world is saying, I'm not doing this anymore the way I was doing it. Well, the reason that this is happening is because we have failed to explore and to apply this beautiful science of psychology. So our minds are our greatest asset, but if uninvested, it's an asset that is, that is, it's weak. And so the world is saying, I'm resigning from the way I'm doing life. And it's not the physical experience that they're in. It's not the external conditions for the most part. It's the internal conditions. I I stay up at night thinking about two things. One is, can I do, can I make the right micro choices and invest in, in the way that I'm spending my time to be able to ring that bell for folks? Because this science is not overly complicated, but positioning the science and telling the stories and being in the right place at the right time to be able to capture the attention of as many people as we possibly can on how psychology works. That's, that's, that's it. And then the other thing that keeps me up at night is, um, is when I was 15, I was a mess. And so there's other 15 year olds out there that are struggling. And so I wish that I had the, the awareness and the understanding of how to use my mind when I was 15. And so, um, I think about those, those 15 year, 15 to 19 year old kids all across the world that are saying, Hey, I'm a mess too. (laughs) say shit you know it's not hard but here's what you need here's what you need to invest in your psychology and here's here's how to start something that's come up on the show a few times is the idea of legacy we've had guests who wrote books on it is there a certain value creation or something that dr michael gervais would want to be remembered for you've already given so much value with your courses with your podcast finding mastery compete to create the warrior's edge is there a position or something that you'd like people to say that has created a legacy piece for you? I don't think about that. I don't know. I, I, I really don't think about that. I, I, I am much more committed to solving what is, what is important today. And I am not skilled at 
thinking about the future in that way. And I'm certainly not skilled about thinking about the future based on what people will think of me. For too long of my life, I was consumed with what people thought of me. This is one of the impetuses for the 15-year-old kid to be a mess. And so I, I am not interested in that. And so I don't say that callously, but it is a massive trap. I think it's a great constrictor for, for me and for most, I believe, to organize our life based on what others might think. And that's what legacy feels like to me. It's like, what are they going to think when I'm gone? What are they going to say when I'm gone? What's the legacy they'll leave behind? Well, I mean, so I, so I don't spend much attention or time there. But I do have, when I do think forward, I think of the great opportunity that lies ahead of us as humanity is that we need to better understand how to have relationships with ourselves, relationships with each other, relationships with Mother Nature, and relationships with machines. The smartest machine is coming. And in nine years, the we will have a machine that is smarter than the smartest human. So we are we are pretty much failing at ground zero, our relationships with ourselves. <laughs> we're not doing so great on relationship with others. Look what we've done to the planet. Holy shit, we're going to have smarter machines here. So the work that I'm deeply committed to is the relationship with self so that we can eventually have relationships with others mother nature and machines. So that's what I'm working towards. And um, I'm, again, not to be dismissive of legacy, because I think it holds power for some, it doesn't hold power for me. That's great. Thanks. And for a man who's really been at the forefront of high performance, elite performance for such a long time, and for someone that really understands how to train your mind to a high level to improve those mental capacities, as it were, as you've touched on today, you know, we've learned loads from you, as have many. We always have a final question. We finish each and every one of these shows, Michael. And that question is, what does high performance mean to you? Do you ask that to everyone? I think all but one. I think it was 161, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and we were a bit gutted then with the track record. was, And we were like, oh, that's a bit of a blemish. People, will, they won't even notice. <laughs> but we're, we've been doing it for a couple of years now. And that's, that's kind of how we finish, yeah. If we we're going to write a book, we'd have to have something that everyone said. That is awesome. Yeah, good. I can't wait to understand your definitions of it. So for me, high performance, let's just take a, let's pull the pull it apart a little bit. Performance is the ability to express. And then so high performance is the ability to express in um, towards mastery. This is why I'm fascinated by the concept. Being able to perform is about expression and being able to perform also has the ability to to be able to express in a way that the demands, there's a time-restricted, demanding environment. And so some people call it pressure, some people call it opportunity, some people call it challenge. So the idea of high performance is being able to meet the, the challenge and the opportunity at hand in a skillful way, and to be able to repeat that and set over uh, multiple conditions. So for me, high performance is, if we're not careful, is a performative aspect of life as opposed to a expression of core principles of core skills and so i'm far more interested in uh, the expressive part than the performative part he was thinking about that last night kiran <laughs> definitely that is one of the best we've had michael mine is and not to play on the raindrop analogy we're, we're irish so we can relate it's going to be raining in about 10 minutes anyway <laughs> 
present presentness and you kind of pulled it in earlier but i that's actually leaning into the philosophy that i've unpacked in your course as well i think being present as a dad as a husband as a business partner as someone speaking on a podcast writing a blog if i'm not all in with what i'm doing treating a patient then then the work or or whatever that is suffers so i really feel that that's that's what high performance is to me to whatever i'm doing to be locked in focused nothing else matters that's mm. when i give my best mm. that's what it means for me anyway I, I love that piece from david so i know that from working together for years he's always tried to align with that but i always feel the courage to pursue something that is bigger than you and that can be a relationship that can be a performance for an elite and an event that can be a performance for a discussion a communication but the courage to pursue excellence in whatever relative field you're chasing and to be able to do that on a consistent basis and i think sometimes we have to construe it as performing on a consistent basis but i think showing up and having the courage to put yourself forward and having that authentic approach to knowing what's important relative to yourself is where we get that courage from it's where we ultimately i think find high performance so that's kind of where it lies for me I love I love all of that. So high performance, like if I drill down a little bit more here for you guys, is that the high performance that I'm interested in are the ones that happen on the razor's edge, where you're not quite sure if you have the capabilities to meet the demand. And it, it's in those moments, whatever relative that's but that's a relative state and condition for each person. So high performance at one pass is like, are you the best in the world? Did you get a gold medal? Did you get, are, are you one of them? I'm much more interested in relative high performance. So whatever your relative capacity is, can you be close to it today? Can you be close to it tomorrow? Can you be in striking range again on the third day? And if you, if you take it out of the craft nature of it, that's where I start to think about a living masterpiece as the expression of high performance. It's available each day, each moment of every person's life. And it's that artistry of eloquently working with the unfolding, unpredictable present moment. And so that eloquence really springs from at least two sources, which is having that foundational inner skills to be able to create and adjust to the unfolding moment, and then mapping that against the first principles that we talked about earlier. You know, it's, it's one thing to adjust to the present moment. It's another thing to adjust and at the sacrifice of integrity. And it's yet another and completely different to be able to eloquently adjust in alignment with first principles. And so, you know, a living masterpiece for me is dynamic in nature. It's nonlinear, it's multifaceted, it's, it's, it's beautiful in that way. And it, it, it's an experience that is fluid with the unapologetic metronome of the present moment. And that's, for me, that's where I start going, oh man, there's so much potential for so for all of us. Are we organizing our our inner life to run to the edges, to touch that edge where we can be on time with the unapologetic metronome of the present moment and to do it in a way that we're expressing the most that we have in this um, as a resource base? That's what I'm interested in. Just, just as an aside, as we're finishing, Michael, I, I didn't try throwing bricks upon my head, brick upon brick upon brick upon brick, like that video in your course. That was that was high <laughs> performance, right? He took the extra brick at the end as well, right? That was courage. Yeah. <laughs> it, wasn't that great? I know. 
look, we enjoy that. Michael Jury, thanks very much for your time. That was uh, a lot of gratitude going across the pond. We got loads from that. It's loads of fun. Appreciate it. You guys are awesome. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, a story of high performance. This was brought to you by Howora, a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com, spelt H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen. Others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan.